Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 318 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Emily Calandrelli. She's a correspondent on the Netflix series Bill Nye Saves the World and an executive producer and host of Fox's Exploration Outer Space. She holds a bachelor's degree in mechanical and aerospace engineering from West Virginia University and a master's from MIT in aeronautics and astronautics, as well as technology and policy. And we'll be speaking with her today about her children's book Ada Lace on the Case and its sequels, which aim to get girls interested in science. And now here's her interview with Emily Calandrelli. All right, so we're here with Emily Calandrelli. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so in the acknowledgments for Ada Lace on the case, you say, I wish I had someone like Ada to look up to when I was younger. So could you just talk about why you feel like there was something missing in terms of characters like this when you were growing up? Yeah, um, so when I was growing up, I wasn't a kid who really thought that science and tech and engineering and all that stuff was for me. Um, and I'm sure that's for a number of reasons, but, um, one of them is I think that a lot of the books that I read, uh, if they had any science or really any adventure in general, um, that I liked any books that I liked, all of the main characters were boys. Right. Um, and so that didn't stop me from reading those books, but it did, I think, prevent me from seeing myself, um, as, someone who could become that main character and have those types of sciencey uh, experiments or adventures or whatever it was that was happening in the book. Um, and so what I wanted to do was create a character that was female who had these types of adventures and science experiments and, and science uh, developments that Ada does um, for other kids so that they could have a female character to look up to. So what were some of those books that you were reading growing up? Were there any science fiction books in there? Well, oh gosh. Um, I, the things that come to mind are obviously like Harry Potter, <laughs> which I was pretty obsessed with. Um, but, you know, we had a little bit of Hermione there. But still, even even with Harry Potter, the lead characters, two of which, two of the three were male. Um, and so... I could feel like I had a little bit of identity with Hermione, <laughs> which was great, but there really just, there wasn't any that I can recall that I would look up to. I mean, we had um, like Bill Nye, which was amazing. I was obsessed with Bill Nye when I was a kid, um, but there weren't really the female equivalents. And the only one that we had was maybe Miss Frizzle, who was not real. <laughs> So I don't know. There were just there wasn't a ton of people to look up to. Well, I'm sorry. Who, um, I'm not familiar with that. Miss Frizzle. Miss Frizzle, yeah. like uh, from the Magic School Bus. Okay, no, I, I, I missed that one. I feel so embarrassed. Yeah, that yeah. Does a book podcast. Oh, but she has. Oh, well, the, the, that the, was. I mean, the bus travels through time and space. Yeah, exactly. So they. Um, I mean, now it's a book series, but I believe it started out as a TV show. Um, and so, yeah, Miss Frizzle is someone who is absolutely an amazing character and um, really perfect to look up to. But again, she's an adult and not real <laughs> um, and a bit wacky. So she's she's pretty great if it, when it comes to role models to look up to. She's a pretty good one. And if you don't have a magic school bus of your own, it's kind of hard to emulate her, right? I would imagine. It, it is hard. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that you might be able to be like her when you grow up. <laughs> I mean, you say also in the acknowledgments that you didn't consider yourself one of the smart kids. Could you say what you mean by that? Yeah. So uh, in my town, uh, I grew up in West Virginia and I grew up in a college town. And so the smart kids at my school growing up um, were the ones who had parents who were professors at the university. We had, um, you know, West Virginia University was in our town and we had some incredible professors that came from all over the world who were really, really talented in their own fields. And they knew um, the types of, you know, uh, activities to do with their kids to help them perform well in math and science. These were the kids who had all the right tutors who were in 
um, the different after school science clubs and mathletes and all of these things, um, which I did not think that those things were for me. I was the very first person in my family to pursue science and engineering. It wasn't something that um, I felt like was genetically inclined for me to do. Um, I'm, you know, my in my family, I'm one of the first to uh, graduate college. Uh, many of my extended family members didn't go to college. Some didn't graduate high school. And so when you're a kid, you kind of think that some of those talents and some of that intelligence is hereditary. Uh, so, yeah, because I didn't have parents who were engineers who had PhDs or family members who were in that that line of work, I just I didn't think that any of that was for me. Um, and so, yeah, I just I didn't consider myself one of the smart kids. Mm -hmm. The second book, uh, part of the dedication says for the kid obsessing about grades, don't worry, you don't need to be good at everything to be great. Um, did you have what, what were your grades like? Did you have like, OK, grades? Or yeah. In high school, um, I had fine grades, but they weren't perfect. Um, and I definitely, I, I think I subscribe to um, kind of like a fixed mindset. If you've heard that philosophy, a fixed mindset versus growth mindset. Um, and so, you know, with, with a fixed mindset, you kind of, you believe that your characteristics, your intelligence, your creative ability, all of these things are generally fixed. And you can't change in a meaningful way. And so someone with a fixed mindset has somewhat of an unhealthy relationship to success and failure because they think that um, any, any type of failure that you have is kind of validation that you aren't smart or that you are not creative or whatever it is. Um, and so in my head, I thought if I didn't get an A, if I didn't get 100% or whatever it was, then that was validation that I was not one of the smart kids. And so growing up, I had this very unhealthy relationship with grades um, because I thought that it was just validation of your genetic ability or your <clears throat> inherent intelligence. But, you know, as I grew older, I kind of uh, adapted to what's known as the growth mindset and realized that you can eventually... Um, make yourself smarter in different ways. And you can um, eventually come to think of yourself as one of the smart kids if there is such a thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I, I've gotten a little bit better of uh, about thinking about these types of um, validation uh, like things like success and failure. See, my attitude in school was that I was 100 times smarter than all my peers and teachers, and the whole thing was beneath me, and I didn't even want to bother with it. So that's probably an entirely different type of unhealthy uh, attitude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those are maybe uh, two different ends of the same spectrum. <laughs> you also say in the book, puberty wasn't kind to me. And I think it's probably not kind to a lot of people. But was there anything specific? <laughs> Oh, no. Just looking through um, lots of pictures, I, uh, I, my family teases me um, when we go through old pictures and they'll look at it and they'll be like, ooh, awkward stage, awkward stage for Emily. <laughs> so, yeah, I uh, had a hard time kind of figuring out how to <laughs> cope with my uh, looks and hair and just lots of funny things about me growing up you didn't but you didn't have like headgear or a back brace or any of that kind of stuff no no luckily i'm you know everyone has their own challenges but uh no i think i just just looked a little bit funny <laughs> <laughs> um well so you say uh in the afterwards to the third book you say that you spent a lot of time fantasizing about life on other planets uh, could you tell us about that yeah so you know as i mentioned i had a very unhealthy relationship with grades. Um, and so I was a kid who probably didn't consider myself one of the smart kids, but perpetually tried to fit in with the smart kids. I wanted to be one so badly um, that I just made myself constantly anxious about grades. So I was a very, very anxious kid. I remember stories of me being in, I think it was like fourth grade or fifth grade. And I would come home and tell my parents that I had six hours of homework 
And so I would go home and have to stay up really late for a kid and just be constantly working. And my parents were so irritated with my like fourth grade or fifth grade teacher for giving this like 10 year old so much homework. And so they went in to talk to the teacher and the teacher said, I am not giving her that much homework. She is taking that on herself. This is extra work that your child is doing for whatever reason that we like, she should not be as stressed out as she is and she should not be doing as much stuff as she is um, at her age. And so growing up in West Virginia, I also um, was lucky enough to be able to see a lot of the night sky when I was a kid, because um, in parts of West Virginia, there's very little light pollution, especially where some of my family, extended family lived. And so I just remember being this very anxious kid going to visit some of my family members that were, you know, 30 minutes off a back road um, and kind of driving to these places at night and being in the backseat and looking out at the window, outside the window at the night sky and trying to escape from this like high anxiety life that I've created for myself. Um, But looking out at the night sky and just imagining what it would be like to leave planet earth and go to another world and just hang out with a bunch of aliens for a while and not worry about grades and not worrying about all of these problems I've created for myself. But that was like my escape. And luckily for me, I lived in a place where I could see the night sky. I could see, you know, hundreds of stars in the sky every single night. Um, And so I could have that little escape for me. But yeah, I fantasized about aliens and traveling to alien worlds all by myself um, a lot. (laughs) So did you, was that just sort of a feeling that you had? Or did you have any specific ideas about what the aliens or the alien worlds would be like that you would travel to? Um, I guess in my mind, I always imagined that they'd be very nice, um, (laughs) that they would be welcoming of this anxious child from West Virginia. Uh, But no, other than just kind of, uh, imagining what I would see in movies. Um, a Contact was a really wonderful movie for me. I mean, it, that was like living out my own fantasy, basically being able to visit um, an alien world by myself. Um, but yeah, other than just kind of going through what a kid imagines an alien to be, that's, that's what, <laughs> what I imagine myself. Mm-hmm. But you so you really draw a straight line from that to studying aeronautics and astronautics in school. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that the interest was always there. I definitely wasn't someone who thought that I wanted to be an astronaut when I was little. Um, I just wanted to get good grades and thinking of becoming an astronaut would probably make my brain explode um, as a kid because that just sounded way too hard. Um, but when I got to you know, I was a senior in high school trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, I was a very logical kid and I was I was pretty decent at math when I was um, a high school senior. I wasn't the best kid in the class, but that was something that if you really spent a ton of time with kind of memorizing all of the formulas, that was something I knew how to get good at. Um, and so I looked at the different majors that used math. And I looked at the average salary, the average starting salary of those majors. Um, and I noticed that across the board, engineering was, um, you know, consistently engineers made a lot of the, uh, made the most money after graduating with a four-year degree. And so I decided as a high school senior that I wanted to do engineering, um, but I didn't know what kind of engineering. And I kind of, I just went to college, just, I was going to figure it out. Um, And I remember walking down the engineering hallways when I was a freshman, and I saw a poster on the wall that had two students floating weightless, like astronauts. You could tell that they were students. They looked like 19 years old. Um, And on the poster, it said something like, do your homework weightless. And I remember seeing that and thinking, like, what kind of nerdy metaphor (laughs) is that? But it turned out that it was a class for aerospace students who wanted to test and experiment in microgravity and weightlessness. And um, if you designed an experiment that NASA deemed worthy, you could ride on something called the Vomit Comet. 
And so this became my goal as a, a freshman. I wanted to ride on the Vomit Comet. That was like my ultimate goal in life. And that's how I ultimately chose to go into aerospace engineering. I wanted to float like an astronaut. I think that's really smart that you checked how much jobs pay before you went into it. I obviously never did that, given that I'm a science fiction podcaster. <laughs> yeah, there's probably not a lot of data on those average starting salaries, I imagine. Yeah, well, it's. I'll just tell you. I also spoiler warning. It's kind of low. <laughs> uh, I also didn't end up becoming an aerospace engineer or a professional aerospace engineer. So, ha, jokes on me. <laughs> Well, yeah, so you got into sort of um, media and TV hosting. So how did, how did that happen? Yeah, so kind of flash forward from freshman year to eight years later, um, I ended up, you know, graduating from undergrad and then going to grad school um, and continuing to study aerospace engineering type of work um, type of stuff. And then when I was graduating with my master's, I got a call from a production studio that was like, we are looking for a person with your specific expertise to be the host of a show about space. Would you like to be the host? Um, and it was actually like very serendipitous because it was perfect timing. I was literally just graduating, looking for a job. Um, and I thought, well, I have nothing to lose. I don't have to leave a job to pursue this right now. Um, it did not make a lot of money. So I had to continue living um, on a grad student budget, which is not a ton of money. Um, and I thought, you know, if this doesn't work out, then I have four science and engineering degrees to fall back on. Like this, this is a seemingly a smart risk to take because it sounds fun. It sounds like an adventure. I'll learn how to do something new and interesting, which was hosting a TV show. I've never done anything like that before. Um, but yeah, five years later, it, the show's still going on and I've kind of um, branched out from there. So do you have any idea how they found you? Like, did you have a website or something? Like... Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, throughout my engineering, the thing that I consistently did every year was outreach related activities. Um, and so, you know, going to schools, talking to high school students and middle school and grade school students about um, why I think they should go into engineering um, and then also with the general public. So I uh, one year I created something this like PowerPoint presentation, um, public speaking thing that I I think I named something like why NASA is worth it, something very straightforward like that. And I kind of rented out an auditorium and I invited the city of Morgantown where I was from to come and watch my presentation as to why I thought NASA was worth the money that we spend on it. Um, and it was videotaped and I think it was put online. And um, so there was videos online of me talking about science and space exploration. And so, yeah, I think they, they found me from YouTube basically. And that show is that exploration outer space. That's the show. Yes, Exploration Outer Space on Fox and on Amazon Prime. Yes, yeah, so do you want to just tell people, if people haven't watched it, do you want to just tell them a little bit about what it's like? Yeah, so uh, so Exploration Outer Space is basically a Saturday morning show. Um, we design it mostly for high school students, but I have kids as young as six years old who watch the show and, you know, kids as old as me in their thirties who love science and space exploration and learn a lot from the show. So basically I, as the host travel around the country, sometimes to other countries and cover just major projects and missions and different activities that are happening in the space industry. We cover the history of space technology to what's happening present day to what will um, likely happen in the future. Uh, but yeah, we show off that the space industry, in my opinion, is more exciting today than it has ever been in history. And we go to mostly NASA centers and private space companies, universities, sometimes K through 12 schools, and just talk to the people who are really progressing the space industry today. So who are some of the people that you were most excited to interview? Yeah. So uh, I got to interview Andy Weir recently, um, you know, author of The Martian, and got to pick his brain about how he 
writes his very scientifically accurate sci-fi books, um, went through his creative process. I met him in his home here in Northern California and even talked to him before his newest book, Artemis, came out. So got to kind of see the beginning, the beginnings of, uh, you know, that creative process in his second big book about space exploration. So he was really cool. I mean, I, I've interviewed many astronauts. Mae Jemison um, was a recent one. She is absolutely spectacular. Uh, uh, Dick Rutan, one of the famous brothers of um, these aviation legends, the Burt Rutan and Dick Rutan. Dick Rutan was the first pilot him uh, in, um, uh, oh, what's her name? Um, something Yeager. I, I, oh, Gina Yeager. Yes. Uh, so those two are the first two pilots to fly nonstop, um, non-refueled around the world in the Voyager aircraft. And he took me up in one of his experimental planes that his brother Bert had designed. And inside this little aerobatic plane, it said, uh, warning, this plane is not approved by the, or not certified by the FAA. And then handwritten under that, uh, Dick had written, uh, that's what makes it so fun. <laughs> so, yeah, lots of random adventures here and there. I mean, they were um, involved with the XPRIZE, weren't they? I seem to. Yes, Bert Rutan, yeah, he helped design Spaceship One. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then also you've done some guest appearances on Bill Nye Saves the World, which I guess is pretty cool if you were a Bill Nye fan growing up. But so how did that come about? Yes, yes that is, has been a dream. So I'm a correspondent on Bill Nye Saves the World. He has about six correspondents now, I believe. But basically, it's, it's similar to The Daily Show, where they have field correspondents who go out into the world and cover stories for the host. And so that's what I do for Bill. Uh, one of the bigger trips that I had taken was I went to India to cover a few different stories, one on vaccines, one on how educating women affects world population, and one on space exploration. And so, yeah, it, it's been pretty incredible to work with the man himself uh, and kind of learn from the best. Yeah, I mean, I watched the episodes on private space travel and overpopulation where you, you went to India. Um, I thought it was striking. You say that there's actually better maternity policies in India than in the U.S. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that was um, very upsetting to learn. I mean, the United States is one of the only developed nations in the world that doesn't have a federally mandated paid maternity leave policy, uh, which I think many people would find very surprising to learn. But yeah, going to going all the way to India and finding that they have more progressive maternity leave policies was um, a bit peculiar. Yeah, you mentioned even like Serbia. There were a couple other countries too that that are ahead of us on this. Oh yeah, uh, well, most if you basically any country you can name <laughs> yeah. uh, is ahead of us <laughs> on this. So yeah, it's um, pretty unfortunate. Yeah. Well, so then, how did you become a children's book author? Yeah, so that happened a couple years ago. Um, basically, went to New York and pitched um, a lot of the main publishers in New York about uh, just creating a book series that had science and mystery and a lead character who was this cool girl who loved science and technology and could build her own robots and gadgets to solve these mysteries. Um, and they said yes, and I've been working on the Adelaide Adventures uh, for a couple years now. Right now, we have five books in the series. Three are out now, the first three. Um, and the fourth one comes out in, I believe, in September, early in September. So, yeah, they um, are really cool. They're basically like Nancy Drew, but a little bit nerdier. <laughs> and so did you have the co-author and the illustrator when you pitched it, or did the publisher kind of connect you with them? They connected me with them. So I come to them, I come to the publisher with the uh, idea, the overall idea. Um, and then we, they, they had um, a co-author in mind that had basically written many children's books before and basically had a Skype interview with them to make sure that we would work well together because we'd have to work pretty closely together throughout the series. Um, and she's amazing. Camps and Weston, she's 
such a professional, so good at her job and so easy to work with. Uh, and then they sent me a few illustrators and uh, Renee is the Renee is the illustrator we ultimately picked. And I loved her artist work because it's like her artistry because she's very, she seems to work with watercolors. I mean, it's, it's all illustrated, but her, her illustrations look very watercolor based. And when you write, when you're writing a book about science and technology, it feels, um, it feels like it makes the world of science and technology a little bit less, uh, intimidating when you're painting this world in such a fantastical manner with colors that look like it's, you know, watercolor based. And it just feels very childlike in nature. So kids who are reading it, um, it doesn't feel like they're reading a science and tech book like you would imagine. Uh And then each book has a behind the science section in the back. Was that the idea from the beginning or did that come to you at some point, that idea? Yeah, that um, that came a little bit afterward because there were times where, you know, I, I wanted to include more science in the book and it just it didn't make sense to do a deep dive into the science because it would have detracted from the story a bit. You know, sometimes you have to make the trade off of like you can add just a, a pinch of science into this like long story that's really captivating. And then that kid will walk away with just a pinch of science um, or most kids will walk away with a pinch of science or you can add a ton of in-depth science. And then maybe only, you know, a pinch of kids will walk away with hmm. a little bit of science. There's most kids will be detracted and not want to continue reading. And so what we do in the book is we just add a pinch of science. And then for the kids who want to learn more, they have this, it's basically a glossary of science in the back. Um, and then I add, this is told in first person. I tell my own stories that I relate to, um, the science, for example, in the third book, uh, Ada uses a ham radio to communicate with the International Space Station. And so I talk about the time where I worked with a company to be able to contact the International Space Station to contact an astronaut on the ISS using a ham radio, just to show that, you know, this is a real thing that students can do. This technology is real. It's being used right now. And it's really awesome. Um, and so, yeah, it's a it's a fun way to get the kids who really want to dive into the science to be able to give them that information that they're craving. Well, you know, it seems like you've given Ada a number of your interests. So you said you actually did ham radio stuff, which appears in the third book. And then you say you all actually did high school robotics competitions, which appears in the second book. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, any author is going to draw from their own experiences. And for me, I'm just trying to imagine what is realistic for a kid um, who is interested in science and technology, what's realistic for them to uh, be able to do. And so, yeah, first robotics competitions are an incredible outlet for kids to learn about, um, you know, mechatronics and science and technology and robotics. And so I I included um, basically what is a first robotics competition um, in the second book. And um, art was something that I loved growing up. I was a big, um, I I just, I wasn't, you know, wonderfully good at it, but I really, really enjoyed it. And so um, throughout the book, there's also lots of stories centered around artwork. And her best friend, Nina, is really the artist um, in the series. And so I can kind of pursue my interest in art around uh, that character. Okay, so now the character's, Two of the characters are named Ada Lace, the main character, and then there's also a Milton P. Edison. Um, are you we're, are, we're supposed <laughs> to think of Thomas Edison and Ada Lovelace? I assume. Yeah, I mean they're they're basically just a nod to um, those characters. Milton Edison is, uh, if there were a villain in the book, um, Milton Edison would be the villain. Uh, he becomes, you know, a little bit more of a complicated character later on, not purely villain, like no villain is, but uh, Edison is someone that I wanted to include in the book um, in a menacing way because he just didn't really seem to have the most positive uh, uh, life story in real life. So, yeah, there's a, there's a few other Easter eggs in there um, that we wanted to name after real scientists and engineers throughout history. 
And the premise of the first book, it kind of strikes me as sort of like Hitchcock's rear window. Was that a intentional? Uh... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A few people have mentioned that. Yeah. Just kind of like watching the world go by out the window. Uh, yeah. A little bit. I thought it was more um, Tamsin's idea. But yeah, I believe she drew from that because a few other people have mentioned that before. Uh-huh. One of the science things that you mentioned that I, I wasn't familiar with are the gecko gloves. I was kind of surprised to find out those are real. That's pretty cool. I know. Um, yes, because I, I wanted to create, I wanted to include something that would allow her to scale walls. And I was doing a bit of research and found that there was a Stanford student who had been working on this technology, kind of drawing from, you know, inspirations from natural phenomenon where this actually happens. And gecko hands are uh, the thing that he's been studying to actually create these gecko gloves. And they're not commercially available yet, but they are. It is a real technology. It's a technology that they have been testing. Um, and then NASA does actually very similar work with various rovers that they want to send, um, you know, down steep inclines or up steep inclines. And they, too, draw from, you know, natural phenomenon um, from various animals to be able to grapple and grip onto um, seemingly flat surfaces, but, you know, no surface is actually flat. So if you can design something to get into those little um, small nooks and crannies, then you can scale walls that um, you wouldn't normally be able to do with your non-sticky hands. So, yeah, wanted to include something that that one's a bit more futuristic than a lot of the other science that is included in the book, just because it's not an off-the-shelf technology. But yeah, I thought that was a fun one. Yeah, because geckos, I guess they have little sort of rigid hairs on their hands or something that, that grip the surfaces. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's all about getting into those, um, it, I believe it's the Vanderwall forces that it's like at an atomic scale where um, they actually attract to each other when they're at a very, very small, minute um, scale then they have these like very special forces that interact between each other. So creating something very small, like gecko-like hairs um, allows that to happen. Yeah, that's really cool. So you mentioned that Ada has this friend, Nina, who's an artist. And Nina is much more of a, is, is a less sciencey sort of person. She's more of a kind of like hippie sort of person or something. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> and you say, um, or in the, in the book, it says Nina was a good friend. They didn't always see things in the same way, but that wasn't a bad thing. I was just curious, um, you know, do you have interactions yeah. with non-sciencey sort of people? Like, what are, what's that like? Yeah, I, I mean, um, basically any single person that is in my family is a <laughs> non-sciencey person, um, other than my brother. My younger brother's a math teacher. Um, but, yeah, so I have a lot of interaction with people who are smart in different ways. Um, and so with the friendship between Nina and Ada, I wanted to get across that um, – People can be intelligent in many different ways. And for Nina, she's a very creative thinker. She's um, an out-of-the-box type of thinker. She's very good at artwork and thinking of things that, um, you know, Nina or Ada is a very analytical person. And when they work together, they come up with different types of ideas that, um, you know, different approaches to the same problem. And that kind of speaks a lot to... Um, diversity in many different ways, because when you add diversity to any team, you have people with different backgrounds, different skill sets. And when you are able to achieve that level of diversity, you have people that approach the same problem in different ways, and you're more likely to come up with an optimal solution um, to your problem. And so with each book, there's various problems that they both tackle together. And we try really hard to be able to show that um, Ada has great ideas. Nina also has great ideas. And when they work together, they are able to combine their ideas to find um, the most optimal solution to their problem or mystery or challenge or whatever they're working on. But I mean, so when you're talking about family members who are not so scientifically inclined, I mean, there are a lot of issues of science that are really consequential. Like, I mean, you mentioned vaccines and you know, it could be climate change and so on. Do you have any like feelings about how hard you should push people on science that, that really matters like that? Yeah. So I think for me, what I've learned is that with any conversation you have with someone who either doesn't know the science or thinks they know the science 
um, and is very wrong. <laughs> uh, with any conversation that you have with them, you should not expect to 180 completely change their mind. No single conversation is ever going to completely change somebody's mind. And so when you go into these conversations, if you choose to go down that path, because sometimes, you know, you're at Thanksgiving or you're at Christmas and you just don't really want to go down that path. Um, but if you do choose to bravely go down that path, your only expectation should be to potentially move the needle a little bit um, because that's the best you can hope for. And if you go in thinking you're going to completely change their mind and you notice that that is not happening, likely what will happen is that people are going to get emotional. Things are going to get personal. The conversation is going to blow up. And if anything, you're going to make them, uh, you know, more determined to believe their beliefs that they went into that conversation with. Um, but if you just go into that conversation, knowing that all, all you want to do is to give them a little bit of information that might change um, kind of their thinking on that just a little bit, um, then I think that's more powerful. Because when you go into those conversations, the most powerful thing that you have going for you is that assumingly that person likes you. And they're often not hearing a an opposing view from people that they like, right? We all surround ourselves in our own little bubbles, in our own tribes. We feel very comfortable hearing the hearing the same opinions that reflect our opinions. Um, and if you're saying something opposing to their opinion and that person likes you, you want to keep that person liking you because it, if anything, they'll walk away from that conversation knowing that there are people that they enjoy and that they like and that they can relate to in some way um, who have a different opinion than themselves. And that alone is beneficial. I think that's interesting that you assume going into any conversation that the person likes you. I feel like that's probably a safer assumption for you than it would be for me. <laughs> I'm, well, if they're related to you, uh, maybe if you're at like a random party and you find someone who uh, doesn't agree with you, then that's a different case. <laughs> but if you're at a family outing, I, I have to assume that someone who's related to you likes you in some way <laughs> or has to like you. <laughs> have you had any um, specific examples of that kind of moving the needle where you're kind of like, oh, yeah, I made a difference in the world, like a small difference in the world? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that um, there's kind of like a spidering effect or a, I don't want to use trickle down because there's not, it's not like a trickle down. But um, for my parents, um, I know that my parents' ideas have been very much affected by um, my brother and I, who are very scientifically minded and do our research on various topics and then talk to our parents about these topics, who wouldn't normally get that information from any other source. And so by educating our parents, when they go out and talk to their friends, um, they sort of share the information that they've learned from us and have, they're kind of emboldened with these uh, arguments that we provide, that we tell them. Um, and I think that by them uh, kind of understanding the science behind it and understanding the logic of what we're telling them, they can share that logic with others. And so there's that spidering effect where it trickles into other communities that are surrounding that. And so because my parents probably like us um, more than uh, many of my other family members, I like to assume they are more likely to be influenced by what we believe and so, yeah, I mean, of course, I have lots of uncles uh, and cousins who really don't like the way that I um, think and are probably less influenced by my arguments, and my opinions. But for at least for my parents, it has a trickling effect to their personal bubble, to their community. And honestly, I think that's like the most powerful thing we can do is reach out to the people who love us the most and share with them these scientific arguments and evidence and all of that, because then they can use that to trickle into their own tribal communities. Yeah. Well, I mean, you said that one of your goals with writing these books was to get kids interested in science. Do you hear from kids who, who have like gone into science or are interested in it because um, they read these books? Yeah. I mean, while the books have only been out for about a year, um, 
But yeah, so I, I definitely, I have kids that, uh, for example, I had a book signing recently uh, to celebrate the release of the third book. And I had kids who dressed up like Ada Lace, little girls that dressed up like Ada Lace. I had girls that came in full astronaut costumes, um, kids that wore science shirts. Like they were really excited to wear um, this science shirt that they found at Target to my book signing. And I, I, I just, I think that it showed that these kids were excited to show that they like science. This was something, this was like an event that allowed them to rally their interest of science um, and come here like so excited to show me that they love science and Ada Lace. Um, another, I think, a thing that's powerful about the book, um, more on a personal level, is that Ada is from West Virginia um, in the book series. And so that was important to me because as a West Virginian, there are not that many I would say positive stories of uh, our state in the news. Um, and so I wanted to give the people of our state something positive that they can share with their kids, a positive role model who's a West Virginian that they can share with their kids uh, because we don't have a lot of that. And so one of the stories that um, a parent told me at my last book signing was that her daughter was reading Ada Lace in the living room, not knowing who the author was. This was a parent from West Virginia. And the girl, when she got to the part where she learned that Ada was from West Virginia, ran into the kitchen and excitedly told her mom that Ada Lace was just like her. And it was just one of those things where I was like, that's exactly why I wanted to do that. That was so, so perfect. Like I couldn't have made up that story better. So it's absolutely perfect. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that um, it's at least giving these kids a reason to be proud of liking science and technology because Ada isn't a nerd. Like she's not portrayed as the quote unquote nerdy, like big bang theory type of socially awkward, traditional stereotypical nerd, right? She's a nerd in the sense that she loves science and tech, but not in the like, you know, char caricature of a nerd. Um, and so it's someone that, they can look at and be like, yeah, I'd like to be like Ada. Ada seems cool. Like she, it seems socially fine and also uh, happens to love science and technology. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, so one story that I've been talking about a lot on this show recently is that there was this movement to get more scientists to run for public office. I don't know how, how closely you followed that at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, but so, uh, but I was kind of discouraged because in the the recent primaries, the the science candidates didn't do that well, and I was I was really sort of discouraged about that. But so I I recently interviewed um, Carrie Byron, and she was uh, from MythBusters, and she was saying that we maybe we need sort of more like publicly known scientists to run for office, and she actually mentioned you as someone that she thought would be good. So I was just curious if you well, heard. that is awfully amazing. That <laughs> makes me feel really good. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It's definitely running for office just sounds so terrible. <laughs> so I do not blame people who don't want to do it because it just it sounds like um, Twitter being made into real life where on Twitter, I already have so many people that say terrible things uh, to me and to others. And I just see this hatred um, on the Internet all the time. And that's without running for public office. And so running for public office just sounds like you would have all of these Twitter trolls become more real and people in real life would tell you how much they hate you. <laughs> so I just, it doesn't sound very pleasant. And I know that that's not a very good excuse for wanting to try to make the world a bit better, but I understand why people don't want to do it. Um, I would never say that I would never want to do it because it does sound like something I, if Oh, I don't know. In the future, it certainly sounds like something that could be interesting because I, especially with West Virginia, I have been trying to follow West Virginia politics and find ways to help, um, you know, the people of West Virginia in various ways. But running for office just sounds not not pleasant, not not like a fun activity to do. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, because, you know, I, I majored in political science and that was something we talked about a lot. It's called candidate emergence of why don't 
you know, people good, you know, people that you would want to run for office run because it's so discouraging. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely that's definitely a thing. But so so you what kind of how do you deal with the the Twitter stuff? Like, do you have any strategies for uh, just I don't know what you do, insulating yourself from all the toxicity on on the Internet? Yeah, I mean, you have to first you, you create your own system. Everyone has their own system that works for them. Um, for me, I try to classify people who say rude things on the internet into constructive trolls and non-constructive trolls, because sometimes people can say something in a very mean way, but then they have, but they have a good point. And so I try to make myself open to those people because I think it's good for us to hear those things every so often, as long as those things are not, you know, covered in blatant misogyny or racism or, you know, threats of violence. <laughs> but when things are uh, covered in blatant misogyny or racism or threats of violence, that's when you get just very liberal with the block button or mute button or whatever it is. So you just have to use that um, mute button and block button uh, on a regular basis to prevent yourself from seeing a lot of those hateful messages. But I do think just being on the internet in general has given me a bit tougher skin because over the years, even recently, if somebody disagreed with me, I would immediately think, oh, I'm wrong. They're right. What was I thinking? Um, too quickly. I would too quickly assume that I am wrong in any situation. And I still have a problem with that. I just assume that I'm, you know, I think this comes from my childhood of never considering myself a smart person. I think if somebody feels bold enough to give me advice or to criticize me, then surely they're, they're right. Surely I'm the one in the wrong. Um, but uh, I have tried to recently become more confident in my own opinions and thoughts and try to, uh, you know, start from the position of, okay, let's see if like, maybe I'm right. Maybe they're right. And that is a, a, maybe a, a a step in the right direction for me, at least than automatically always assuming that I'm wrong. So um, yeah, getting tougher skin online has been uh, a process for me. I'm going to take a while to guess and say that you're not the one who's wrong in most of these situations. <laughs> well, I mean, there are many cases where I am. I, and I think it's healthy and productive to when people are wrong to openly admit to them being wrong. But I, I, yeah, and, and maybe the vast majority of cases of people who are bold enough to criticize me online, um, not every single one of them uh, I'm wrong in. <laughs> you know, uh, two or three years ago, I interviewed Cameron Hurley. She wrote a book called The Geek Feminist Manifesto. And she was one of her pieces of advice in there is that you should on Twitter, you should mute people and not block them, because if you block them, then they get the satisfaction of seeing that they got to you and, and they're like, ha I got, I got her to block me. Whereas if you just mute them, then they're just screaming into the void and they, you know, they're just, you've just sort of made them invisible to you. Yeah. And I, so that is, I do, I do think that that, um, that is my way of thinking as well. And in addition to that, I think that by muting them, um, maybe if they're still following you, because a lot of people, they find your tweets and they say, mean things at you just because you've tweeted on a topic that they like to find people. Like, for example, if anyone criticizes Elon Musk um, on Twitter, then people who are Elon Musk bros will search for anyone who talks about Elon Musk in a not perfectly positive way and attack them relentlessly. Um, but there are people who follow me who, you know, every once in a while I'll say something that's not about science or space. That's maybe more, um, as an advocate for LGBT issues or feminism or just something else that I care about. And that's when they'll say something kind of mean. That's when you mute them because if they're still following you, you don't have to hear from them, but they will constantly hear from someone that they like, presumably, or they like to follow. They think that your content is interesting. And every once in a while, they'll still see these posts about social issues that you care about. So yeah, I, I think the mute button can be can be useful um, for that reason specifically too. Yeah, no, that's really smart. Uh, okay, so then another thing I'm always on about recently is the Expanse. Have you watched the Expanse? No, I started to, and then I just stopped. I yeah, that is that should be my next TV show. I haven't um, been. Is that on Netflix? By the way, what where is that show? Yeah, I think. 
I think maybe the first two seasons now are on Netflix. Okay, because I specifically need I I only watch shows on airplanes mostly, and so I need any show that I watch to be downloadable. So I'll have to check on that one. Yeah, because I'm I mean I, I love all three seasons. Some people say the first feel the first season is is a little slow sometimes, and actually I think the first season is seventy six percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and season two is like ninety five percent. I think season three is one hundred percent, something like that. So it it gets stronger. Oh wow! You know. By most people's yeah. measure per season, but I mean it's it's so good, and especially if you're interested in space. I mean, the most recent season they had a, an episode where um, the the crew of this ship is lots of people are badly injured and they're bleeding internally. And I guess if you're bleeding in zero gravity, the blood doesn't flow out of your body; it just kind of pools, and it's really really dangerous. And so they have to try to get the ship spinning again to restore gravity so everyone doesn't die from this. And it's just like cool stuff like that that you don't see in other science fiction shows. Yeah. Yeah. I need it. The last like space related, um, the most recent space related show I, I watched was Lost in Space uh, on Netflix. That was, uh, <laughs> I kind of liked it. I don't, there's not going to be a space show that I don't like. So I, I thought it was like a really endearing show. I thought it was pretty cute. All right. Well, I don't, I don't want to be negative then, but yeah, I, I just watched the first two episodes. <laughs> I just watched the first two episodes of that. And I was just, I, I really liked the idea of the, this family where they're all, really competent and well-trained and they use their intelligence to survive. And I, I wish the show had focused more on that than on the sort of, I don't know, TV stuff, the TV drama kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that that I'd be curious to know the audience for the expanse versus lost in space. Cause I have to imagine because they did that, you know, trade off where maybe it was less science and more storyline that they might capture more of a general audience who wouldn't typically watch um, a sci-fi show. So I don't know. Yeah, I think that they're p- perhaps different audiences. No, I, I think Lost in Space was definitely designed to appeal to a wider audience than The Expanse. Um, yeah. But... Yeah. Definitely. I'm, but, yeah team, Expanse, I'm team Expanse, though. I'm planting my flag there. <laughs> yeah. Um, there were a couple of things from, uh, you know, I watched a bunch of episodes of exploration outer space and there's just a couple of things I wanted to mention. So I thought one thing was cool is it said that if you're uh, on a planet that's orbiting a binary star, one of the people you interviewed says that you would actually have two shadows on the ground. Um, and you know, uh, in star Wars, Tatooine orbits a binary star. So you would think everyone has two, sh- should have two shadows, but I want to kind of keep that under wraps because I'm afraid if anyone tells George Lucas that he's going to go back and like CGI and extra shadows <laughs> yeah yeah that uh that sounds about right <laughs> um and then also i i thought this you know there's this stupid internet meme where nasa spends a million dollars developing a space pen and then russians just use a pencil and yeah that kind of stuff just that's my favorite like myth to bust on uh on like nasa inventions and spinoffs so do you want to just like bust it right now yeah yeah so the meme you know, the the silly joke is that ha 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 nasa spends a million dollars developing this pen that would work in microgravity and the russians just use a pencil um but in reality uh, so pencils were something that were used in the early days but they were very dangerous because pencils um then were made of you know lead and when pencil uh, shavings would break off, that lead is very flammable. And this, during this time where they were, uh, NASA was deciding, you know, what type of writing instrument to bring up um, into space, this was very soon after the Apollo fire, the Apollo 1 fire. And so NASA was very sensitive to um, fires in space. Basically, these environments that are very oxygen rich anyways, and if there were a fire, there's really nowhere to escape. Um, and so they're very, very sensitive about trying to find something that wasn't flammable. So a pencil is not a great option uh, anyways. And so there was a, a, a third party, some company, um, and I'm trying to remember the name of the, that pen company. I'm, I'm uh, blanking on the name right now. But there was a third company, an, a private company that developed a quote unquote space pen that would work in microgravity with their own money as kind of like a marketing ploy, a marketing project. 
Um, and so they did spend a lot of money developing this pen, but it wasn't NASA. It was this private company who thought it would make for a really interesting product. And then NASA just bought the pens from this company and in many ways popularized the pen and helped market the pen by choosing to bring this pen up into space. But NASA did not spend their own money, and they had a very good reason as to why they shouldn't be using pencils in space. Well, and they were paying $2 per pen or something for these space pens. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Something that is a reasonable amount to pay for a pen and also a um, a reasonable amount to pay for a pen that would not cause a fire in space. Yeah, it just that kind of stuff drives me crazy because I just feel like so many people form their opinions based on anecdotes like that, which would be which aren't even true, you know, uh, and uh, I don't know, it just drives me crazy. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think one of the most annoying things about humans is that we love very simplistic explanations, especially um, those explanations that are witty or have a story behind them that makes fun of somebody. And so that anecdote is very powerful and sticks in our mind because it seems like such a like a silly joke. Um, but yeah, I, I think that if, if humans were more likely to in their everyday world to question what they think they know, um, we would all be much better off. Yeah, and it's just like, stop to think about, it. I mean, they're NASA, they're really smart. And this is what they do all day long for for a living. You know, like it's the, the fact that you that they're going to do something that you think is stupid is, is very the odds of that are very, very low. Right, that, that should have a red flag in your head to think, oh, is that do we really think that that happened? That doesn't sound right. If something doesn't sound right, then that should be your first clue to do a little bit more research. Yeah. I don't mean to rant. It just, I don't know, it just annoys me. Yeah. Same, 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 same. <laughs> okay. So in the, um, in the, in one of the books in the acknowledgements, you say now more than ever, our world needs scientifically literate students who are excited to understand how the universe works. Uh, could you just talk about why now more than ever, like what's going on right now? You think that makes science especially important? Yeah. I mean, there's so many things to touch on, but I think in general, if I had to sum it up, I would say that, you know, last time I checked, something like fewer than 7% of uh, people in Congress and Senate, fewer than 7% basically of our representatives, had a formal background in STEM, had a formal background in science or engineering, meaning that more than 90% of our lawmakers don't have a formal background in STEM. And I, I think that if the people that are making the laws that influence every single one of our lives don't have, uh, you know, I mean, not to say if you don't have a formal background doesn't mean you can't understand it, but if they don't have a formal background in STEM, if we're not electing people that have a formal background in STEM, then we should, you know, be emboldening ourselves with this knowledge. Because if those people don't, we definitely have to. We need to hold them accountable because they are making laws that are affecting the internet, that are affecting climate change, that are affecting the safety of our foods and um, mandatory various regulations that um, affect the foods and the drugs and um, the environment and all of these things that affect all of us. If they don't have that knowledge, then we must. Well, you know, if you ran for office, you could potentially increase that from 7% to 7.1%. Just saying. I could. I definitely could. Uh, that is a good thing to keep in mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so we're pretty much out of time. So you want to just say again, so you have, uh, there's two more Ada Lace books coming out. You want to talk about those? Yeah, so um, Ada Lace books four and five. The first, the fourth one comes out in September. The first three are out now. You can get Ada Lace books on Amazon or at Barnes and Noble or at Books a Million, um, basically anywhere um, books are sold. So yeah, Ada Lace is really good for kids age six to ten who want to learn a little bit more about science and technology, who like mystery books. Um, it's a good present to get for kids that you'd like to secretly force science and technology on. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, the fourth book comes out in September. And do you have any other projects you want to mention? Are there any, like, uh, people should go check out Exploration Outer Space, right? Yep, Exploration Outer Space, Saturday mornings on Fox or on Amazon Prime. All right, great. Yeah, so I think we'll wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Emily Calandrelli, and the new book series is called Ada Lace on the Case and its Sequels. 
And so, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Emily Calandrelli for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Thomas Stanix, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to M. Ray Roberts, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.